0: He re rai 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 Shalom, shalom, friends. It is great to see you. And I see, Eileen, you have questions already before we've even started, which is amazing. So thank you all for being here. Great to see you. Steve and Barbara and Eileen and Eric and Michael and those who are joining from the Facebook Live and those on the recording side, we're so happy to be with you. But I wanna start with your thoughts here on a poll question. Here is your poll question. Judaism teaches us that in your view, number one, the self is the priority, our own healing, our own growth, our own responsibility. It is about the individual. Number two, the collective is the priority ensuring unity and cohesiveness and a healthy community. Or number three, there is a flowing relationship between the self and the collective. What is your vote here? We will give you just a moment to cast your vote. Welcome Cheryl, great to have you. Okay, and welcome Lauren, thanks for being here. All right, let's see our poll results. Anyone who had the chance to vote? Okay, as I suspected, no one here voted that Judaism is primarily in their view about the self, nor primarily about the collective, but that there is a flowing relationship between the self and collective. This will raise interesting moral and spiritual and religious and theological questions, which we will explore together. So here we go, friends. There's a lot to say here, but I'm gonna try to go quickly. Should we make choices that are best for individuals or best for the collective? It is hard to answer such a massive question in the abstract. And to be sure, our Jewish tradition values both, as you all know, the individual and the collective. So let's start with the individual. The case is easy to make. The Midrash says, and he observed a mourning period of seven days for his father, corresponding to the seven days of creation. For a person departs from the world that contains the seven days of creation before we mourn over him for seven days. So, just to make clear what this Midrash Lekach Tov is saying, this is really cool. Why do we sit Shiva for seven days when a person dies in the family? Because a person is a whole world. The whole world was created in seven days. And so, too, we should sit seven days of mourning to compare this individual who died as if the entire world had been destroyed. That's how much an individual is worth, right? And so this midrash reminds us that one person is the whole world. We mourn the passing of a loved one for seven days because of the seven days of creation. Just as the world is created in seven days, so too a world that is lost is mourned for seven days. An individual human being is a whole world unto themselves. Maimonides taught famously based on the Talmud that it is for this reason that Adam was created as an individual unique in the world, to teach that anyone who causes a single soul to be lost from the world is regarded as if he has caused an entire world to be lost. And anyone who sustains a single soul in the world is regarded as if he has sustained an entire world. Indeed, all who come into the world are created in the form of the original Adam, and no one's face is identical with that of their fellow. For this reason, each and every one can say, the world was created for my sake. Beautiful. So we are told that God created man in his image. In the image of God, he created him. What does this famous verse about human dignity mean? What is this actually teaching us? We learn here from this interesting source from Rabbi David Wolpe. For most of biblical history, this verse was taken as a tautology. The first half of the verse and the second were understood to express the same thought. But the human being was created in the image of God. But the Kutzke Rabbi saw the verse as expressing two different ideas. The first half, he said, means that each individual is created in that individual's own image. Then we receive receive the infusion of the divine spark. In other words, our own uniqueness comes first. We are stamped with the image that will be only ours, and then we receive an ember of God. Just to make sure this point is clear, what, what, what Rabbi Wolpe is saying here. Here's what the verse in Genesis said. God created man in his image. Then it says, in the image of God, he created him. What? It just said the same thing twice. That's a tautology. So that's the way most understood it. But again, the Kutzker Rebbe explained, as Rabbi Wolby explained, the first part means, nope, every individual is created in their own uniqueness. And after we're created in our own uniqueness, then there is the divine spark that is attached. Not that we are created in the divine image, but in our own image to begin, the Katsuka Rebbe says. So each of us then is unique, but each of us is also connected to the totality, the oneness. We are unique, but we are interconnected. That This is seemingly a great paradox. So to complicate the matters further, the Baal Shem Tov taught every detail that exists in the individual person, also exists in the human race as a whole. Oh, wait a minute. If every individual is unique, then how can it be that every uniqueness also exists in the totality? Even further, it's been taught that the maturation of the individual is similar to the maturation of the collective. Here's what the Ram of Moshe Chaim Lozado taught. This is, this in fact, is the fact that humanity as a whole can exist in four basic states. In this respect, the history of man is very much like the life of an individual. Like a single person, the entire human race is born and reaches maturity. So one theology that some explain and one that I embrace myself is that the Bible, the Torah expresses a very immature state of humanity. That is not to say that humans were immature. Um, it's not judgmental towards them. It means that there's a maturation of human society, of the human development on a collective level. God is, is a disciplinary in the Torah because he's, he's dealing with, with children. Humanity, were children. And so that is a judgmental, a God is judge. But as humans evolve and mature, God also matures in, you know, in, in relationship to this humanity as a whole. So just as an individual matures, so too humanity matures. Rabbi Steinzeltz taught about how each of us has our own unique pathway into Judaism. This is expressed in Rabbi Arthur Kurzweil's book, um, who we've had here at VBM, in his book On the Road with Rabbi Steinzeltz. He was his chauffeur for many years. He was his driver for many years. (laughs) And he writes in that interview, among other things, Rabbi Steinzold said, whether a Jew is knowledgeable about their tradition or not, there comes a time when he has to to re-meet and re-understand his tradition in a way that will be applicable to him and will say something to him as he is. You see, every person has to at some time recreate Sinai for himself. And he said, we believe that the law has at least 600,000 different paths within it for individuals to enter. There is what is called the private gate for each of us. And we each have to find our own gate. And so um, there is no Jewish manual telling us exactly which rules or values or practices to choose. There are 600,000 pathways to Sinai. We must learn to paint our own individual canvas of Jewish values with different colors, different tastes, different intensities, different connections, different memories. Judaism is radically pluralistic. Each of us in our own uniqueness must assemble our own system of values. This is the foundation of moral and theological pluralism. At the same time, in our own struggle to balance our individuality with our being a part of the whole, one might need to put themselves in some danger to save the masses. So we just said the individual is a whole world in themselves, but we're a whole world in ourselves, but we have to endanger ourselves, perhaps, to save the masses. Here's how Rabbi Yaakov Emden, in 18th century Germany explained this in his response to Yavitz. A Jew with political responsibility, an Adam has the obligation to rescue the oppressed from the hands of the oppressor by all means available to him, whether by direct action or through political effort, regardless of whether the oppressed is Jewish or, or Gentile. And so Job Eov, praised himself by saying, I have broken the teeth of evil. And the Torah says of Moses that he arose and championed them referring to the daughters of Yutro. He put his life at risk to save these daughters of Ytro, even though they were the daughters of an idolatrous priest, right? Moshe endangers his life even for idolaters, these women of, of, of an idolater priest. And so we say, oh, I am a world unto myself, and yet I have to risk my own life, my own security to save another. The Yavveit says in 18th century Germany, he says it's all the way back then. So on the one hand, Every individual is created B'Tselem Elohim in the image of God and with infinite dignity and as a world unto themselves. And on the other hand, we must not stand idly by. We must put ourselves at risk to save others because it says in in Leviticus, do not stand idly by your peers' blood. I am God. Lo tamod We might have learned those two were synonymous. Selam Elohim, and lo Talmud al of created in the image of God, and don't stand idly by. But those are intention. If I'm created with infinite dignity, I can't put myself at risk. I have infinite dignity. And yet, we learn, I have infinite dignity. I should not put myself at risk, because I am a world unto myself. And on the other hand, um, we have to put ourselves at risk to save others. And so we learn here, from the Babylonian Talmud Sanhedrin. From where in the Torah do we learn that if we see a friend drowning in a river or being dragged by a wild animal or attacked by, by oppressors or bandits, that one is obligated to rescue them? That is the meaning of lo Talmud al-dam re-yecha. do not stand utterly by it. So this is a paradox and we can't oversimplify and say it's saying the same thing, it's saying a contradictory thing. We are to emulate the divine and engage in yeshuv ha'olam, promoting peace in the world. And here's what it says over there in Sefer HaChinuch. We Jews have been commanded to rescue the pursued from the hands of any who pursue them with intent to kill, if necessary, at the cost of the pursuer's life. We have to do whatever we can to save the person. If, I, if, if, if I'm living during, during slavery and I'm a northerner and a slave is running away from their master, I have to put my life at risk to save them. If there is a refugee whose life is at risk, I need to hide them in my basement to save their life, right? I have to do whatever it takes to save another. Among the roots of this commandment, the Chinuch says, is that God who is blessed created the world and will that it be settled. And that the settlement of the world is upheld by the championing of the weak against those who are stronger. Furthermore, the pursued will always have eyes and heart toward God to champion him against his pursuer. As the scripture says, the Lord will seek out the pursued. But God loves the weak, meaning that the pursued seeks the Lord and prays to him. Therefore, God, who is who is blessed, has commanded us to assist the pursued. Oh. This is radical in our tradition. Consider how none other than Moshe, Moses himself, put himself at great risk intervening in three injustices in a row. He interviewed, intervened regardless of who was involved in each case, Jews or Gentiles. Just to remind ourselves, in the first case, the Egyptian taskmaster is hitting a Hebrew and Moses intervenes to save the Jew. In a second case, two Jews are fighting with each other, and he intervenes and puts his life at risk. And in a third case, two Gentiles are are, are fighting, and he intervenes. What do we learn from that? Regardless of who is in conflict, the Jew is to intervene to bring peace and stability to the world. The Lubavitcher Rebbe wrote that the value of both the individual and the collective are both paramount. This is a little bit long-winded, but it's an interesting Hasidic theology. So I wanna share the, the, this, uh, this full teaching here. He wrote, when an individual c- comes and joins a crowd, one might think, since there are so many Jews here, if so, what am I worth as an individual, right? There's 2000 people here for Kol Nidre. What does it matter if I show up? There's hundred people here at the rally. Who cares if I'm at the rally? To this we respond, blessed is the one who comes. Uh, it says in Psalms, it says in Tehillim, though you are but one individual, even when you come to a place in which a crowd is found, your existence as an individual remains intact. Indeed, a special blessing is extended to you. Blessed is the one who comes. When you visit my new office, you'll see that's the, that's what it says when you walk out of the office. <speaking in Hebrew> blessed is the one who comes and blessed is the one who leaves. This is underscored by the saying of the sages. For this reason, man was created alone in order that all future generations should know that anyone who descends from Adam, which refers not only to Jews, but to all descendants of Adam, all humanity, including non-Jews, is a complete world. When an individual comes and joins a crowd, then he accrues the additional station, the additional merit and blessing of the community. In addition to fulfilling their mission as an individual, he also fulfills his mission as a part of the collective entity. Thereby, it not only becomes easier for him to fulfill his individual mission, but he also accrues an additional mission that can only be fulfilled by a collective entity formed by several individuals who join together, like one man with one heart for for a single person and telos, thereby creating an entirely new entity. This is great because in in Jewish circles and in political circles today, people are fighting for one or the other. It's all about individual freedom, individual liberty. It's all about individual uh, self-determination, right? Or others say, no, it's all about the collective. It's about the people, it's about the nation. And either of those views taken in its extreme um, on a religious or political level can be very dangerous can be very dangerous. And so this idea that Lubavitcher Rebbe says, yes, even when you enter a crowd, you enter a collective, you never lose the individual. And yet, in addition to keeping your individuality intact, you also, when you join a group, you join a community, you join a nation, you join humanity in your mission, you gain a new mission as well. You are enhanced. You don't lose your individuality, but you gain being a part of the collective. And so we need both the individual and the collective and each strengthen and reinforce one another. So to some degree, friends, the notion of an individual completely separate from the collective is more fully developed in modernity. Here's how Rabbi Sachs explained this. People began writing autobiographies Artists, he's talking about what happened in modernity. These are all modern phenomena. Autobiographies, nobody wrote autobiographies for the most part prior to modernity. Artists started painting self-portraits. People used to paint fields. They painted churches. They painted synagogues, right? Self-portrait. That is the modern idea of the self. The Rembrandt in the 17th century did so repeatedly. Over 40 paintings, 31 etchings, and seven drawings of himself. That would have been radical pre-modernity. People lived increasingly in private rooms. Nobody had a private bedroom. You had a collective room. The husband, the wife, the children, they slept in the same room. It wasn't just about poverty. It was about you live together. What do you mean that a child gets their own bedroom? What what, what are you talking about? a private room. What do you mean that your bubby gets their own room? The grandmother lives in the same room as the grandchild. We live together. The French psychologist, Jacques Lacan, argued that the sense of an eye closely corresponded to the mass manufacture of glass mirrors, right? Mirrors were a modern phenomenon. All roads in the late 17th century, writes historian Christopher Hill, led to individualism. There was such a a desire for the birth of the self. He wrote, more rooms and better off houses, use of glass in windows, replacement of benches by chairs, All this made possible greater comfort and privacy for at least part of the population. Privacy, he argues, contributed to the introspection and soul searching of radical puritanism, to the keeping of diaries and spiritual journeys. We might think that all people understood the sense of self, right, that existed, but this was a modern phenomenon. And perhaps it went too far. No matter how much we account for the collective, we must never forget the individual. Rabbi Sachs continues, Against that, God tells Moses to lift people's heads by showing that they each count, each of them count. They matter as individuals. Indeed, in Jewish law, a dover minion, something that is counted, sold individually rather than by weight, is never nullified, even in a mixture of a thousand or a million others. In Judaism, taking a census must always be done in such a way as to signal that we are valued as individuals. We each have unique gifts. There is a contribution only I can bring. To lift someone's head means to show them favor, to recognize them. It is a gesture of love. So friends, looking at the political level, we see the danger of extremes. We must reject the extreme version of both capitalism, which has left billions out to dry in destitute poverty while expanding the gap between rich and poor, but also reject in its extreme form communism, which suppress the individual human spirit in the name of the collective. We need a new concept thats responsibi- respons- that holds a responsibility to both the individual and the collective. This work is crucial to rebuilding a healthy democracy that values both human dignity and collective responsibility. Quaker thinker, Parker Palmer, who I love to read and quote, he wrote in his great book, if you haven't read it, Healing the Heart of Democracy. These habits have a downside as well, as does everything human. Individualism can slip into selfishness and communalism can collapse into having to m- no mind of one's own. Sorry, that should be no, not two. Learning how to hold individualism and co- communalism in creative tension with each other, allowing each to check the other's dark potentials is a key to democratic habit of the heart. I think Palmer is touching on something that puts democracy at its risk itself. We see people on both political extremes, who are celebrating a a rugged individualism or rugged communalism in a way that is, would be destructive and turn the clock backwards. The Jewish, the great Jewish author and thinker, Dr. Erica Brown writes, this trend is not at all surprising if you compare it to sociological trends in virtually every other area of American life. In Habits of the Heart, a bestseller of individualism and commitment in the united states the authors argue that americans have come to make sharp distinctions between private and public life to the detriment of the latter fierce individualism has weakened the bonds of community communal responsibility and the nation of the and the nation of the collective which results in among other things the disney themed funeral right? The Disney themed funeral is in place because, oh, I have my work life and my private life. And I'm a different person at work than I am in my private life. I have myself on social media and myself among my private friends. And those are different people. So too, the funeral is a crisis now. The funeral, I've got my family in the front row who knows me one way. And then I've got a hundred rows of people who don't know the real me. So I need some Disney theatrics to make it look like I'm something of a, uh, uh, you know, that I portrayed myself in public, which my whole family there knows is something different than who I really am. So who do I wanna be in this moment for the first time in my life, where my work colleagues and my family and those distant people who I knew 30 years ago, but I don't really know anymore, are all sitting together now. Now I've got this this Disney theatrics of trying to construct some image of who I was that actually contradicts one another and, and actually shames the legacy of an integrated whole, right? Because with modernity and the birth of the self, I now construct multiple identities publicly rather than having an integrated whole. And so the crisis of the funeral and um, that, brings, uh, that brings contradictions and confusion to everyone present. Reform theologian, Rabbi Dr. Eugene Borovitz, probably the most prominent of reformed theologians of the 20th century wrote, God's kingdom to be is not a private matter between one individual and God. It must be accomplished with all people and be manifest in our lives or it is unworthy of the Lord of the universe. The individual man cannot understand himself. He cannot properly know his own life's purpose unless he sees it within the context of all mankind and all of history Isolated from his fellows, he isolates himself from God's social goals. And finally, here's the last source I'm going to share that I want to open up our conversation. This is a lengthy poem from Rav Cook in Orota Kodesh, where Rav Cook offers us a poem on the relationship between our individuality and collectivity and how we might find ourselves. Oh, right. Today, we love to say in self-help books, find yourself. Make your own, you know, destiny manifest, right? Be your true self, right? Um, be the author of your destiny, right? It is a worship of self. It is all about myself and my own goals, my own destiny, my own actualization. Don't get me wrong. I, I, I love those self-help books. I think there's something there to f- somebody trying to find themselves. But taken on their own, it creates a deep narcissism. The narcissism of our own day that thinks exist- existence is about ourselves, that the goal in our life is actually about one's own self-accomplishments, that a, a, a well-lived life is about one's own success, right? Th- those books have created a crisis of narcissism in our own day that is about our own social media identity. It is about our own wealth, our own resume, our own uh, uh, you know, achieved success rather than collective goals Collective self. Nonetheless, Rob Cooks writes exactly on this point, what does it mean to find myself? He writes, each individual finds himself within himself, then he finds himself within his surroundings, his friends, his community, and people. The community finds itself within itself. Then it finds itself within all of humanity. Humanity finds itself within itself at least at first, then it finds itself within the world. The world finds itself within itself, but then it finds within all the world surrounding it. The entirety of universal encompassing finds itself within itself, but then it finds itself with an all-inclusive, supernal classification of all concepts of universe. The concept of universe finds itself within itself, but then it finds itself within the full treasury, the supernal light, the multitude of life, as well as the source of its days and in the divine illumination. All of these recognitions fuse together. They become one unit whose inclusiveness is infinitely glorious, whose particular nature is strong, flawless, whole and outstanding, endless and perpetual. The flow of life flows ever more strongly and the light of holiness grows ever more strongly. The singers and flute players proclaim together. All of my wellsprings are within you. Sion." Oh, what a beautiful rough cook. What a beautiful rough cook where he is reminding us that, wow, what an unsuccessful failed, sad life. If we, if we look at the successful life, looking at ourselves in the mirror, if, if, If the success of life is a narcissistic one, we will be so depressed. Who am I? I don't have enough money. I'm not good looking enough. Not enough people like me, right? I I haven't achieved enough in my life. What a depressed way to live. And yet if I look in the mirror and what I see in the mirror is my father and my mother, my grandmother, my grandfather, I see my child and my grandchild. I see my friend, I see my nation. I see my community, I see the collective, I see the past and the future, I see my own planet and multiple universes interconnected, right? I feel all of that together, and yet in seeing all of that I still see myself in the mirror, myself in interfused with all of that. Wow, the joy, the illumination of that humility, of that humility to never lose ourselves but to see ourselves in the collective. If covid has taught us anything, the responsibility of how we take care of our own breath, of how we, of how we take our own COVID tests, how we take our, use our own masks, of how we take responsibility for one another, of how we see our breath interconnected in our own survival. Each of us is called upon to actualize our unique gifts and talents. Each of us contains greatness that we should boldly and courageously pursue. On the other hand, Each of us is called upon to be humble and serve the greater good and see ourselves as a tiny part of a massive collective. Striving for the right balance should be considered each and every day. So friends, um, I want to open up the conversation. Before I do so, if any of you forgets to unmute yourself or forgets to unmute yourself, um, and um, I want to let you know, there has been a great shaming of people over the age of 70, um, who struggle with unmuting themselves. But I want to tell you something. I just came off a session with Jewish teenagers in our community, and they did not know how to unmute themselves. And so forget this whole, oh, seniors can't unmute themselves. It's the teenagers who can't unmute themselves, right? The seniors know exactly what they're doing, right? So (laughs) these teenagers had no idea how to unmute themselves. Okay. so Lauren, over to you. Don't forget to unmute yourself, Lauren. And then to Eileen, did it, and I'm Great. over seventy. Oh, very um, nice.
1: Be proud to <laughs> be over seventy. Great. Woo! Yeah, I'm a boomer. We we like we rock. Boomers rock. Um, there was a very beautiful thing I heard Rav Shlomo Riskin say in a, in one of his yearly shiurim that he gives before Rosh Hashanah in Yerushalayim. He says, "Achrayut." and I'll I'll translate for those who don't speak Ivrit, achrayut, responsibility, contains in it, ach, brother, and acher, the other. So, you know, we we do have a responsibility to the other. And I've always felt that we're a very communal religion. I mean, Yom Kippur, ashamnu, bagadnu. It's not ashamti, bagadti. We say our sins together, and I really do believe sort of in a, mystical level everything we do affects the other although it does on the real ground too and the last thing i want to say is like politically as somebody in her 70s i don't think anything has ever been as destructive as the unholy um twins of thatcher and reagan i mean that that emphasis on the individual uh thatcher saying there's no such thing as a public place we're still suffering from that concept today. So I'm very, very, also as a Canadian, I'm very much community oriented. Um, beautiful,
0: so beautiful. So, Laura, first of all, you know, I, I, I often tell the joke, and I'm going to add Canadian to this. You, you, we've all heard the joke before. Um, how do you know if someone is an atheist, a vegan, or a CrossFit training athlete? Don't worry, they've already told you. <laughs> 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 Sorry. Trainers and, and atheists love to tell you. And I'm going to add Canadian to that because, uh, you know, Lauren, you have never offered us Torah without reminding us you're Canadian. It's a beautiful thing. It's a beautiful thing. So always be proud to be Canuck. So first of all, thank you for that. Uh, for those who are Thatcherites or Reaganites here, if we have such folks, well, I'll, I'll, I'll leave your defense of Thatcher and Reagan uh, to you. Uh, if you want to combat Lauren's uh, critique of Thatcher and Reagan, you won't get that defense from me. But we'll give a space if one of you wants to offer it. And to make sure everyone understood the first Torah that Lauren shared, achrayut the word for responsibility, has the word ach and acher in it. It has ach, which means our sibling, our closest person. And it has acher, which means the other, the distant person. And so built into the Hebrew word of, of responsibility, it, built into the word itself is those like me and close to me and those not like me and distant from me. So Lauren, thank you for that reminder. Eileen, over to you.
2: Um. I think that right now with COVID, we are seeing examples of extremes. And I find it disheartening that people will refuse to get vaccinated to protect their own families, their own children, their own parents and their community it seems to me to be extremely narcissistic and selfish.
0: Thank you, Eileen. I, 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 like most of us here, probably have a family member who has made such a choice. I also struggle greatly with those who make that choice. And I think that it is a good um, example, in my view, um, of what it means to take collective responsibility. So thank you, thank you, Eileen, for, I for that. Yeah, Cheryl, hi, Cheryl. Hi. Um,
3: I learned I will I learned something from you all the time but the very interesting thing you said at the very beginning about the reason that Jews sit Shiva for 7 days I never put that the, those two things together about be a world being created and a world being lost and now it seems that there is movement in certain movements of Judaism to uh Cut down on the amount of shiva that is being sat, and um, I'm, I'm wondering if that if that were a universally disseminated piece of information, you know, if if the rabbis or whoever is conducting uh, the, the funeral uh, would put that into perspective and let us know that 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 that's um, the reason. That we do seven days. I, I, I'm just wondering if that, if people would reconsider and saying, well, my time, you know, my time is not as valuable as I think it is, you know, I can do this for for seven days. But um, I, I just really loved that piece of information that you
0: taught, the Torah. Awesome, Cheryl. Thank you for that. And, and, and it was new to me. It was new to me until I saw this midrash just recently. So to, to, to flesh out what Cheryl's sharing here, I think there's really two issues here. There's the, there's the collective engagement with Shiva and there's the individual engagement. The, the, the breakdown of the collective Shiva, I think partially is the breakdown of community. That um, that in our liberal world, um, our communities are not strong enough that we can sustain a collective experience of Shiva for seven days. In, 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 in the ultra Orthodox world, it's not even a question. Like the number of people who would, who are already gonna to go to Minyan and instead of going to Minyan and Shul are now gonna to go to a Minyan in the in somebody's home because that's where the Shiva Minyan is. It's just so easy and so obvious and so simple. But in our, in our liberal world where most people don't go to Minyan uh, on a daily basis, um, not to mention on a weekly basis, the idea of showing up more than once for a Shiva would be such a big demand. Um, and so that's the breakdown of the collective Shiva. And then on the individual Shiva also, we see kind of a breakdown of the mourning process of those who they have, they have kind of embraced a, a secular idea that when someone dies, we should immediately go to celebrating them, celebrating the person who died rather than a mourning experience. The Jewish idea certainly believes in celebrating one's life. But before that, we mourn their death. That's an important part of valuing life is that we mourn death before we celebrate their life. Of course, those can be intertwined to some degree. And so, that sense of like, wow, I need to like pause and go through a morning. If we don't embrace that morning, human psychology teaches us, we will continue to embrace that, have a deeper level of trauma that extends much longer if we never fully embrace the morning experience. So to actually move forward and honor that person, we need to sit in the deepest, darkest place of sadness. And that's why Shiva is not supposed to be, unfortunately, like some people make it today, a circus. It's not supposed to be a social party where everyone's laughing and having a good time. It's supposed to be a space where we hold a heavy space for that person. They're not supposed to be an entertainer, you know, putting out, you know, not, not, nothing against putting out food, you know, but uh, they're not supposed to be a major entertainer, but we're supposed to sit with them in that space. And so, but to go back to Cheryl's first point. So I think the first way in regards to creation, we normally talk about the, the creation the, the, the relationship between Shiva and and, um, and um, Shiva and creation is, is, is twofold. One is um, that seven is considered a cycle. It's a full cycle, both on a, sp- on a spiritual mystical level. Seven is a cycle. And so what does it mean to go through a cycle of mourning? You need a full cycle, seven days. The world is created in seven days. So too go through a full cycle of mourning, that's seven days, just like the seven days of the week. Um, so go through that whole experience and then you're out of that cycle. But then this Midrash, as it radically says to remind us, is that the reason for seven is that the person themselves is a whole world. And so we, we, we mourn for seven to embrace the, full, the, the fullness of the human being. And that is an insight to Cheryl and to me when I just saw, saw this Midrash just recently. So, um, so thank you, thank you, Cheryl. And I do hope we can return. I know it is difficult, but I do hope we can return to this. And for those of us who are not super traditional and would not sit at Shiva in the most traditional way, I hope there is something we can do that when a very close family member, God forbid, dies, there's some way we can embrace a seven-day cycle. I know people who, if the death happens right before Yantif. Right before a holiday where Shiva is canceled, they feel robbed. They feel robbed of the Shiva because Shiva is canceled if it falls right before the death happens, right before Pesach, you know, or the like. And so they feel robbed of that experience. And so if we can't embrace a full Shiva, I hope there's some notion of a Shiva we can embrace. By the way, to remind us, Shiva is connected to the word Shiva. Shiva means seven. Shiva you know, obviously seven, but Shiva also means sitting. It's a it's a time of sitting, right? Yeshiva, yeshiva, a study house, is a place where we sit. What that's what you do in the studies, you sit, and so it's a time of sitting. Okay, over to you, Steve. Hi, Steve. And then oh, and then Am to I Erica. i Yes. Oh yeah, you are, Steve.
4: Oh my God, I did it. <laughs> oh, I feel fulfilled. Everything else is not consequential. Uh, <laughs> Rabbi or, or Rev. Cox poem epitomizes and summarizes everything in which I believe to the point where it brought tears to my eyes. I believe that we are all super connected, but that connection does not diminish the importance of the individual, that uh, there was a sense of ongoing and eternity in that poem that the endlessness of connection is 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 just so wonderful and and brings me a a lot of joy, I I love the word connection, but I don't want to diminish the importance of the individual and at the risk of incurring the wrath of other people. um, I, I believe that. We should do unto ourselves and then do unto others, I want. People to be strong and confident and and compassionate towards themselves, and I think that's the best way of lifting a community and reaching out and touching. And I could go on and on, but let me just finish by saying, Rev, Rev Cook. I, I think that was his name.
0: Rev Cook. Yeah, Rev Cook.
4: That, that was one of the most beautiful poems I have ever heard, and, and I'm going to read it and read it until I go to sleep tonight.
0: Thank you. Thank you. I love it. And, you know, it's easy to embrace the second part of what he is saying. Thank you, Steve. Where he says, OK, so, so he has this repetition, right? And, he's, and he says each individual finds himself within himself. Then he finds himself within his surroundings. So th- the second part is easy to understand. That we find ourselves within otherness. But the first part is in each in each of those refrains is important to think about as well. Each individual finds himself within himself. Each community finds itself within itself. Humanity finds itself within itself. It's easy to understand this part of finding ourselves outside of ourselves. But what does it mean also to find ourselves within ourselves? And so as Steve says so beautifully, it's not that each of us should be self-indulgent. Right and and worship the self in order to take care of one another, but through compassion to self, through compassion to self, it can overflow, and so that's so beautifully put. That's so that's so beautifully put. Um, yes, uh, can you please share the, the slides? Okay, I will I will post Rav Cook's um, poem here in the chat so that if, if folks want to copy it, they can, and if that doesn't work for you, you can email me and, and I will um, and I, and I can email it to you. Okay,
5: Eric, over to you, Eric. Thank you so much. This has been very fascinating. Citing the uh, shiva has been was a great idea because it made me think of the dichotomy of life cycle events. There's this. It's kind of like an overlap, but also could be a tug of war of the individual vis-a-vis the community. I mean the shiva, but you also have uh, births, you have bar bat mitzvahs, you have weddings. There's just those are examples of those but also i'm thinking about the jewish holidays too where there are significant meetings where it's towards the individual versus the or towards the um the community pesach uh or yom kippur like there's there's different dichotomies for for the both uh my thoughts is do you see the individual versus the community more of a as a tug of war as as in the concept for the individual because versus um as you said, complements towards each other. So tug of war versus like, there's there's always gonna be that conflict of, of the other one versus the other versus can there be a space where both exists mutually and together?
0: Yeah, beautiful, beautiful. So if we wanna make it a clash, let's take our age old conflict of the trolley case. You all remember the trolley case, the famous trolley case. I am a conductor on the train. And if I keep going straight on the train. I don't touch anything. My train will run over five people and kill them. I am passive. I don't touch anything. The five people on the train tracks will die from the train. Or I can actively switch tracks and actively kill one person, right? What should I do? Should I passively keep the train going forward and kill five people or actively, um shift the train to, the, uh, uh, to kill one. Now ethicists, moral philosophers have debated this for hundreds of years. And of course, a deontologist will say um, you cannot murder. And so you, must, you, you can't actively shift. And a utilitarian or a consequentialist will say, well, killing one person is much worse than killing five. Of course you have to shift tracks. And that debate goes on and on. Jewishly, I think it is, um, it is also a complicated case Jewishly. However, I think the Jewish argument uh, that would be most strong from our tradition, even though it is complicated, would be um, that one cannot touch the lever. Because one life is equal to a whole world, and infinite, in, infinite plus one is not greater than infinite. And so I cannot actively murder. And so um, even though killing five is obviously worse than killing one, I've done it passively and I can't actively kill. So this is very complicated. It also comes down to even more complicated an end of life case. Can we actively murder uh, somebody who's 90 years old because we could take their organs and save five children, right? According to a consequentialist, the answer might be yes. We can actively kill a 90 year old in order to save five children with those organs. According to the Jewish tradition at large, the answer is no. A 90 year old's life matters just as much as five children. Infinite is not greater than infinite plus one. And so I can't kill a 90 year old to take their organs and save five children, right? The idea would be absurd. And so, um, and so, uh, and so when you push it to a moral dilemma, the the, the, the individual and the collective, uh, we see we have to make a choice. And the choice there is in the individual, right? We don't kill one to save more, right? Um, and, and, and yet when we move it from the moral to the, um, uh, to the spiritual, I think we can start to see that there is a breakdown of individual and collective. There's a fuzzy barrier, a, fundry, a fuzzy boundary between myself and the collective. One of the reasons for the Shiva we might suggest is not only, well, the most common two goals of a funeral or of a Shiva are are twofold. One is to bring comfort to um, uh, to the mourners. The other is to honor the deceased. That's what we're doing at a funeral. And that's what we're doing at a Shiva. We are honoring the deceased and we are comforting the mourners. But a third idea may be, to actually infuse the individual with the collective. That individual who was lost is now brought into the collective consciousness, right? That person who was lost now lives not only in the memory of the closest relative, but lives within the collective. We share, the individual becomes infused with, integrated into the whole, so that the mourner is not alone and the the deceased is not alone, but actually we all become hold, uh, holders of a collective memory, a collective consciousness. And so, um, and so too, that's why we pray in a minion. Of course we pray individually, but we pray collectively in order to uh, remind ourselves that we exist individually and collectively. And so once again, I think uh, to circle back to Eric's point here, I think we, we see both this idea a maintaining of the individual, a maintaining of a collective. And as we saw from Rav Cook and as Steve just pointed out, how those two ultimately come together. Okay, Uh, I wanna hear from people who have spoken, but before that, I wanna invite either Cindy or Barbara or Matthew or Eddie or Pam to weigh in as well. Okay, if none of them are jumping in, if someone has spoken and they wanna return, you're welcome to as well.
6: Yeah, just a few more things about Judaism being a Jew thing. Um, there's a concept called Israel Aravim Zelazeh, all, all Jews are responsible for each other. And I so I once had a time, I think it was the 70s, but not important. I was with a friend traveling through Israel and Tel Aviv. We got lost. We just got completely lost. We didn't know where to go. So we saw a hotel and we went and we, and, and we said to the guard, we don't know our way. And, and the guard said to us in Hebrew, like, When a Jew is lost, who else do you go to but a fellow Jew? And I just, you know, we we should definitely expand it to all human beings, but um, there was a time, you know, when when living in Israel, before things became more capitalistic and and more uh, modernized, that really, it was such a community feeling. There really was a feeling that we're all in it together. And to be part of that kind of society is, really beautiful. Sometimes if you look, you see in a shul, you know, within a group, and it's, um, yeah, the individual is important, but the community is
0: so important. Yep, beautiful, yeah. beautiful. Thank you so much for that. You know, and it's easy to feel uh, some unnecessary embarrassment, which we should really push away at being particularistic, right? There is something really powerful to Jews taking care of Jews, and that doesn't diminish our love for humanity and our care for humanity. Just like a father or mother wants to care for their child, or a child wants to care for their parents, or, or, or the like, there's nothing to be ashamed of of taking care of a family member. So too, there's nothing to be ashamed of taking care of a community. Yisrael, That we take that Jews take care of Jews, and that doesn't mean that Jews don't don't take care of all humanity as well. But we can we can live with both of those commitments, and that's one of the powerful things about community, and I think we can rebuild that. I think the universalists got it wrong that it, that with, with the breakdown of community, and I think the particularists got it wrong of thinking that universalism is a threat to particularism. The truest Judaism, as I understand it, is one that loves Jews, loves Jewish community, celebrates what it means to be together in our uniqueness, and yet in no way sees that as a barrier towards Um, towards the love of all people and the the responsibility to all people. So Lauren, thank you for that. Who else wants to jump in here?
7: I'd like to say something.
0: Oh, Barbara, Um, wonderful.
7: You know, all of these things um, still point to, directly point to tikkun olam. And um, the responsibility that we as individuals, and people that we have selected to represent us in the political world and everyone around us has an obligation as a human being to care about the rest of the people around them. And I agree with Cheryl that this this should flow over into the way people behave as far as As uh, protecting themselves and their communities by being vaccinated and also I would extend that to the to the political scene that these people have an obligation. And this is, this is not a secret that people have those people that have been elected have an obligation to care for and and act upon the needs of the community. And I, it's a very sad thing that we're living through right now that, that, that all of these things are faltering. And it's too bad that we can't go back to, um, to the strong belief that, that we are one and we are all.
0: Beautiful, beautiful, Barbara. Thank you so much for that. This notion of tikkun olam, of repairing our world, that what, what should bring us the deepest joy, the deepest fulfillment is caring for our planet Earth that planet Earth is in danger, caring for refugees and immigrants when they are at risk, caring for the homeless and the most poor in our society, lifting up the most downtrodden, understanding that all of our power and privilege can be leveraged for the good of another, and that is not a sacrifice, that is not a loss, that is not just pure altruism, that is also a a, a gain for ourselves. To be a part of such a holy enterprise can bring us joy, can bring us fulfillment, And that ultimately, we need not be afraid of our death. I mean, of course, it's natural to be afraid of death. But to understand that we never die, whether bracketing our theology of Olam Haba, the next world, that in a sense, everyone who has ever lived on this planet is still a part of this planet. And everyone who has not lived yet is a part of this planet also. We're all in this together. When we have passed, we're still here, in a sense. And so we are here to repair this eternally. Yes, Eileen, over to you for our last, uh, our last comments here.
2: So my first question was, do the needs of the many outweigh the needs of the few? Yeah.
0: yeah. What do you mean by that?
2: Um, let's take COVID. In uh, that, why should a minority of people who not take the vaccine affect everybody? That to me seems to be morally corrupt.
0: Yeah, right, right, and so yeah, so the camp that the the, the camp that um, you know let, uh, let me uh, let me try to uh, articulate uh, some of their argument. Um, the camp that says um, I, I don't need to be vaccinated, my my body, my choice. I think it also believes they are protecting the collective uh, by protecting the individual's rights within that collective experience. Um, I think that that might seem strange to many of us, including myself, Um, but but I think that that they're arguing that the collective will be stronger if each individual has their own choices kept intact. I think in abstract, it's a position we all appreciate the idea that individual rights should be maintained within collective responsibility. We all believe in collective responsibility. We all believe in individual rights. And then if you take this test case, I think all all of us or almost all of us would disagree that that this is a case where collective responsibility is gonna outweigh individual rights. And yet in another case, we might go differently. We might say, oh, this is a case where individual uh, rights outweighs collective responsibility. So it is is in many ways, yes, Eileen. And I think
2: that's because people who do not get vaccinated have the ability to kill us. Right,
0: right. Yeah, exactly. I, I I think that's primarily what makes this case different. You know, it used to be very hard to try to save a life. You had to like go be a police officer and, and run into, you know, or a firefighter, run into a, a burning fire, or a, you'd be a surgeon, or you had to be a soldier who went to war and saved someone. Saving a life was like a heroic thing. And then we think how easy it is today to be a part of a life-saving side, to follow basic public health protocol, you know, to not text while you're driving, you know, to, um, you know, to follow basic public health protocol where, you know, wherever possible. And, and now it's, to it, it be on the side of the heroic. Um, And so I feel bad that some people feel they're they're doing something heroic by arguing for rugged individualism, you know, arguing for individual freedom at the cost of of saving life. I know they're operating on different data, so I try to give them the benefit of the doubt as much as I can. Um, But I think there's a limit to that as well when when we see millions of people dying, um, you know, needlessly. So friends, I give you all the bracha. I hope you'll give it back to me today that we continue to repair the world. And we do that by keeping the individual intact and by seeing our collective uh, responsibility in place as well. And uh, let's continue to do that holy work together joyfully and in good health. Can't wait to see you next week. Next week, our debate is number 35 and the debates of monotheists versus polytheists on the unity of God. Have a great day. See you soon. Thank you, Shmuley. Thank you, Barbara. It's good to see you all. Bye. Bye-bye.